Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. And we're using German today advisedly. Yeah, we absolutely are. Um, We have got Oliver Moody here, who is the uh, Berlin correspondent for The Times. And he's been delving around into that kind of sort of interesting period of people who were absolutely at the heart of the Third Reich administration, but then also carved out a career for themselves in the post-war West German state. And, you know, all the kind of sort of moral issues over that and whether they should have been allowed to get away with it scot-free. And um, and, and Oliver, you've been been unearthing all sorts of things, haven't you, about our friend Hans Globke? That's right. Um, Hans Globke was a civil servant in both the Third Reich and then in the first two decades of um, democratic West Germany. And if there's two words that are sort of designed to crush out every last spark of interest in the human mind is civil servant. And that <laughs> boringness, I think, was one of his greatest assets. He used it like an invisibility cloak to sort of draw a veil over what he was up to. And it's only really when you kind of um, look at it, the imprint that he left on history and his actions that you can start to make out exactly what he did. Because, I mean, I'm aware of, uh, you know, if you go, if you go to Berlin, um, there's a, there's a, there's a, 
quite good fun. Uh, 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 well, good fun's probably not the right word. There's a, a Berlin under Berlin exhibition where they they show Spears' plans for Germania, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And there's a there's a feature in that where they say a lot of the town planners Spears was working with then went just stayed in their jobs and rebuilt Berlin after the war. So a lot of the pre-planning. So this is a this is a phenomenon. That, that 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 happened all over Germany, isn't it? That, that's hardwired into the into the um uh, into West West German uh, governance, isn't it? There's been a bit of a fashion recently for German institutions to commission studies into the legacy of Nazism and how it kind of seamlessly, in some ways, just got woven into the fabric of West Germany after the war. Yeah. So you get ministries discovering that seventy six percent of their employees, in the case of the Justice Ministry had been members of the Nazi party. Um, But the really weird thing that came up when I was doing the research for this Times podcast on Hans Globke is that this has never been done to the chancellery, the the nerve centre of the West German government. They've never systematically studied its links to the Third Reich, and that's finally happening and we're going to get a big historical report on it. That's amazing. Goodness. why, Why not, do you think? Well, why not? I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that the archival material has been squirreled away in places where it's very hard to get to for a long time. And there's also been a kind of um, institutional culture of secrecy around the Chancellery for a very long time. And um, there's a sort of German tradition where if you're in a senior position in government and you've got files that for whatever reason you don't want to see the light of day, you put them in your briefcase and you take them home and you leave them in your, your attic or your study until you die. And then your um, executors <laughs> hand them over to a political foundation and they, it goes into the foundation's archive where your heirs can control access to it. So it can be decades and decades and decades before you actually really get to the, the meat of what was going on. How amazing. My but- goodness, is that, a, is, is that purely... Is, sorry, uh, sorry, James. Uh, is that purely post-war? Is that thing that was happening... In Ger- was, is that a thing that happened in Germany, German government anyway? Or is that is that since the Nazis? Because after all, if you have got this sort of passing on of the baton, or, or rather not, turns out the same people are holding the baton, as it were. Um, uh, uh, is that a post-war thing to, to cover their tracks or is it uh, a German phenomenon? So I'm, I'm absolutely not a specialist historian on the Nazi period, but my understanding is the no. big problem with the archives there is just that the Nazis were destroying stuff. Um, left, right and centre, right. particularly towards the end of the war, because they wanted to cover their tracks and, and cover their asses in a lot of yeah. individual cases. Whereas um, after the war, um, it's very much a sort of reluctance on the part of some of the most famous post-war chancellors, for example, Adenauer, Schmidt, Cole, to let a lot of their private dealings um, come to light. And um, in some ways, I, I guess you could compare it a bit with um, the scandal over Hillary Clinton using her private emails. You've got this whole kind yeah. of um, documentation of what's going on at the heart of government that, that's really hard to get at in a lot of cases. But but Gosh, but tell me about Hans Dobke. Tell me about you know where. So so what's his background and how 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 does he end up being quite so boring? <laughs> <laughs> so Hans Dobke is is born in Dusseldorf in um, eighteen ninety eight um, into a very devoutly Catholic family um, and his dad bought a draper's shop in Aachen right on the border with France um, a couple of years later than that and then um, so he's growing up in this very um, comfortable 
middle class, Germans would say burgerlich, like bourgeois background. And then it all gets completely torn up by the First World War. Um, when Globka is drafted at the age of 18 into the German army as a, a junior artilleryman. And he's basically a child soldier and he's sent off to fight on the Western Front. After the First World War, um, he goes off to take the kind of classic boring path to being a member of the German administrative elite, which is something called Jura, right. which is kind of law, but also kind of political science. Is basically... Um, the, the, the training for the, the kind of nursery for senior civil servants and politicians. But then his dad dies and the family's got no source of income. So um, Globka has to keep applying for financial aid while he's at university. They, he got on the wrong side of the French authorities once and um, they said, right, well, you can pay a, a fairly trifling fine of about, I think it was 20 Reichsmarks or you can go to prison. He said, well, I can't afford that. I'm going to prison. Um, <laughs> and then uh, he eventually winds up in 1929 going to Berlin and joining what was then the Prussian Interior Ministry. And then he just sticks around. And the Nazis come to power in uh, January 1933. And, you know, he could have left. Um, he could have um, sort of got transferred into business. That would have been very easy. He had a very good network in business. So he didn't but have he, to. He so, to so, I mean, do you think it is ideological with him? Or do you think, I mean, do you think he genuinely supports the Nazis or is this just pragmatic kind of, I'm in this career, these are the now the people in power, I'm a civil servant, that's just the way it is? That is one of the really fascinating things we came up against in this podcast, that to this day, it is still kind of factually and morally disputed what he did. And there are historians who are, who tend to be on the right, but are not nutcases, who argued that the guy was not just... Um, a sort of inward resistor, but um, a sort of secret agent for the opposition in the Reich Interior Ministry, um, and even that he was involved in the 20th July plot to assassinate Hitler. Really? I mean, so, is there, is um, there, I mean, it's incredibly contested. Wow. And is there much evidence for this? Obviously not. Well, we know that um, his this is why his Catholic background is really important. Um, we know that after the war, Lots of very senior figures with impeccable credentials from the Catholic Church, including Konrad von Peising, the, um, the wartime Archbishop of Berlin, came out and said that not only was Globke um, a devout opponent of Nazism, but he'd also been leaking intelligence on what was going on at the heart of the Nazi government to the Catholic Church on an almost daily basis. And there are enough sources that you can start to take that seriously. However, you hmm. can also question whether it really made a difference. Gosh. So what was he doing in the civil service, though? What was his, what's his, what's his role? What, which bit of government is he um, uh, involved in? Because, you know, if he's, if he's doing parking tickets or, you know, resident parking permits or whatever, or he's in charge of the bins, um, then, then, we could, then maybe we can go, oh, well, the guy worked... The guy just worked in government. It doesn't really, yeah. You know what is what is actual impact? Yes, because if he's involved right, in the Holocaust, the really then that's a that's a bit of an issue, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. this is yeah. the really important thing. So Globke's core job in the Reich Interior Ministry is what was known as questions of race and citizenship, which is basically oh, that doesn't sound good. Who counts as an Aryan? Who doesn't? And what can Aryans right, and right, Aryans right, right. do to each other? So the most famous slash infamous thing that Globke did under the Third Reich was write um, the definitive handbook on the 1935 Nuremberg race laws. He did a lot of other 
really objectionable things that paved the way for the Holocaust through law after that. But he was haunted after the war most by this this commentary that he'd written on the Nuremberg race laws. Goodness me! And right. do you think that's genuine? So, do you think do you think so, that's genuine remorse, or is that or is that kind of sort of crocodile tears after the event? The fact that well, he he said he he thought it was disgusting, but he also, uh, particularly his allies after the war, also argued that he had been trying to use the commentary to soften the blow of the race laws to try and create these little loopholes through which. Uh, people who were Jewish, and in particular people who were part Jewish, could kind of escape persecution. But when you read it, and what he wrote in this commentary, which was, I mean, when you call it a handbook, this is what the judges this is trying to interpret the law have yeah. got on their desks. It's Because the, the wording of the laws is often quite woolly and unclear, so they just open up Globka in the middle of these trials and, and sort of read out what it says. And there are a lot of cases where you can see him not just expressing the racial ideology behind the laws but tightening it. So, for example, he rules that um, sexual relations between Aryans and non-Aryans are not just a crime in Germany. They're a crime anywhere in the world, wherever you do them. Um, And also that it's not just sex that... um, Because he's very Catholic. He was also clearly very offended by mutual masturbation, so he made that illegal, according to the handbook as well. God, he sounds a right old Puritan, doesn't he? I mean, you know, he's sort of... um... Well, it's this... It's this things of, 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 of uh, in Nazism of people's personal peccadilloes being given the weight, you yeah. know, the weight of the law, um, which is which is quite extraordinary. So, so um, I mean, was how high up was he? Because after all, we, one of the things we've talked about, um, we, 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 we've spoken to um, an American historian, a guy called uh, Waitman Bourne, who, who's talked about the German army's involvement in the Holocaust in the East. And actually how they were up to their necks in it as, as, you know, it's not just the SS, it's the army too. And one of the drivers involved in that is that, because he's, he's an ex-soldier Waitman, and he talks about how one of the drivers in that is you see sergeants saying, yeah, I'll do that because they know they're going to get, um, they, they, they might get a promotion out of going to this village and murdering everyone, if you see what I mean. There's, there's that built into it too, as well as ideological. There's the mechanism of career um, um, a, a guiding people's decisions. Was was that something that Globka w- w- was operating on? Globka, do we know? Did, was he? Did he write this booklet because there might be a promotion in it for him? I think is what I'm trying to say. That's a really good question. So, um, in terms of his seniority, I think a really helpful analogy is Adolf Eichmann, who was in the the Reich Security Office and is infamous for sort of organising the logistics behind the Holocaust, but was not that senior in the Nazi regime, despite having played such a, a really influential Yeah, he's only, role he's only a in, Hauptmann, isn't he? Equivalent of a Hauptmann. You know, he's a equivalent of a captain, isn't he, I think? Or yeah. major or something, you know, Eichmann. He's, yeah, he's I like, think he was know, Obersturmbahnführer. Yeah, you know, which is pretty, pretty um, lowly, really. Yeah, so um, in the Reich Interior Ministry, you've got the minister, who is Wilhelm Frick to start with, and yeah. then um, by the end of the war, it's Himmler. Then below him, you've got the real... Uh, kind of power behind the throne, who's Wilhelm Stuckart, the um, the Staatssekretär, State Secretary, who's kind of the top civil servant. So below um, Stuckart, you've got um, Globka, so his title is Ministerialrat. He's about kind of on the third level down in the Interior Ministry. And what Al said about trying to untangle what he's doing on his own initiative, what he's doing because he has to, and what he's doing just because he thinks it's a good career move. That's one of the biggest challenges we've had trying to disentangle it. We know that he made a lot of money from the um, commentary on the Nuremberg race laws, for example. He made about 
30,000 rice marks, which would be like an annual salary for a senior civil servant today. And he's constantly um, commended in internal interior ministry files by his bosses for being really diligent, having a good attitude towards um, Nazism and for being extremely capable and competent. Um, He tried to join the Nazi party in 1940 and was rejected because he'd previously been a member of um, a then-extinct Catholic opposition party, the Centre Party, but he also joined about half a dozen other Nazi organisations, and the most important of those is probably the National Socialist Motor Corps, the NSKK, which was a kind of paramilitary motorised wing of the Sturmabteilung, and um, it was later deployed in sort of helping to administer the logistics for the Holocaust. We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick. So then, so that that's his 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 Nazi wartime career. What does he do? I mean, post war, how quickly does he go back into the civil service? Does he just stay in? Is there a is there a is he denazified? I mean, uh, uh, what's the process post war? Well, the other thing I was just going to so, say, uh, sorry, very quickly, is interject here is is that the, yeah, sure. you know if he's a devout Catholic, I mean, he's he's obviously he's probably rabidly anti-communist, right? Right, and that's really important. And, and so, um, so you're, you're, you know, that, those that fig- those Nazis who are rabidly anti-communist can justify all sorts in their own minds, all sorts of other awful sins of the Nazis by that overriding aim. You know, I mean, that's how the Catholic Church get involved in all sorts of, you know, shenanigans during the war, isn't it? I mean, it's part of the same thing. Well, I'll start with the story of how he cleared his name, and, yeah. and we can go a bit into the role yeah, yeah. that anti-communism played because I think it's I think it's absolutely crucial. Uh, so at the end of the war, Globko was posted to um, the Bavarian Alps to be near his family because his um, house in Berlin had been destroyed by an Allied bomb. And um, he got captured by the American army as they were sweeping up through Bavaria in April 1945. And then he gets passed through a series of detention facilities and winds up in Hessisch Lichtenau, uh, which is sort of a, a 90 miles north of Frankfurt or so. And the Allies have got a major problem on their hands because they just don't know what to do with him. And then one of Globke's old mates from his Catholic network, Otto Lentz, turns up with um, a binder full of these glowing testimonies about what a great anti-Nazi Globke was from people like um, Jakob Kaiser, who was um, a Catholic trade unionist, key figure in the resistance who had been on the periphery of the July 20th assassination plot. And in the end, the Brits and the Americans decide to um, denazify Globke on the grounds that he had been involved in the resistance. But also, <laughs> by this time, you can see from the American intelligence files that um, the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA, had already identified him as one of the so-called crown jewels who were going to be put in senior posts to lead modern Germany. So then he gets taken on pretty much immediately as an electoral advisor. He's offered a post as a consultant to the U.S., military government in Berlin. Um, But when he really hits the big time is when he gets introduced to Konrad Adenauer, the first West German Chancellor, in 1949, very shortly before the Allies kind of um, let West Germany hold its first democratic election and form its own government. Gosh. And that's, that's Catholic people pulling strings 
anti and that's on that but that's anti-communism too isn't it is that basically um the, the but by 1949 the americans are completely obsessed with that the, the, there's a cold war coming uh, or it's happening you've had the berlin airlift cold war's underway so anyone with good anti-communist credentials is is a is a solid chap as far as the americans are, are regarded are concerned that's absolutely right and um one thing I'd, I'd really like to talk about in a moment is the Galen Organization, which was a, a huge clandestine spying apparatus in West Germany created by American intelligence and run by a former Wehrmacht major general called Reinhard Galen, who um, had previously been in charge of military intelligence on the Eastern Front. And there are allegations that he obtained a lot of intel through um, the torture of Soviet prisoners of war. But um, the really big question here is, why did Adenauer risk so much on hiring this particular guy when the CIA local offices hated Globker, the opposition were just giving Adenauer such a hard time? Why did he want to stake so much political capital on him? And I think part of the answer is it's the Catholic Old Boys Network. Part of the answer is this very McCarthyite um, atmosphere of anti-communism. Another part is that Adenauer knew he could throw Globka to the wolves at any time so he could count on his absolute loyalty. But maybe the most (laughs) important part of it that I think is really hard to understand today is that in the late 1940s you had 8.5 million people who'd been members of the Nazi party, you had 12 million refugees, you had millions of demobilised Wehrmacht and Gestapo and SS people just hanging around. And I really think it could have been like Iraq if you just kind of cut them all loose. And so Adenauer knew that he needed not just people who knew how the system worked, but people with contacts who could kind of hold everything together and rebuild the state from the kind of theoretically purified core of the old Reich administration. But also, obviously, Globker's extremely good at his job, isn't he? I mean, that's the other thing. And you need people that... I'm sure you're absolutely right about that because, you know, if you're going to rebuild a state... Uh, and effectively create a new state in West Germany. You need competent people who are going to kind of dot I's and cross T's or, or umlaut O's, you know. I mean, you know, you've got, you've got to do that, haven't you? That's true. And um, there's a very famous quote that Adenauer said when he was challenged about this in the Bundestag very early on. And he said, you don't throw away dirty water until you've got clean water. This idea that you've got to work with these ex-Nazis because yeah. um, they're all you've got. They're the people who know how to make the uh, diplomatic service run. They're the people who know how to handle an intelligence service. If you don't have them, then you've just barely got the stable structure on which you can build a democratic state out of nothing. Well, well, because after all, the the Nazis have taken the legacy of the pre-existing German state anyway. So, um, you know, he he, he predates... Globka predates predates the Nazis Nazis, uh, as as a civil servant anyway, doesn't he? So it's... What's the, you know, kind of what's the difference? I also suppose the other thing is there's no point if you're trying to rebuild Germany, there's no point dwelling on who was a Nazi and who wasn't because otherwise, you know, we've talked about this before well, in the podcast. Well, you've got to arrest the whole of Germany. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, essentially. But, but, but also, I mean, it's, it's, exactly, it's, it's the same principle in France, isn't it? When, when de Gaulle takes over, you know, and he, he says, right, we're not going to talk about you know, we're not going to talk about resistance. We're not going to talk about those who were in Vichy. We're, we're, we're only going to look forward. We're going to sort of, you know, and that's why the the, the pity and the sorrow which comes out in 1968 or 69 or whatever it is about the you know the occupation of france and the french resistance and and those who supported vichy and all the rest of it that was banned you know that's banned until 
1989 mm. or 1990 or something like that. It was, I mean, some ludicrously further on, time further on. And that's because, you know, in France post-war, they didn't want raking up all those coals. They just wanted to let it, like, you know, that was then, those were the dark years, you know, let's move forward. And it's just, it's got to be the same with Germany, hasn't it? I'm sure that's, you know, I'm sure that's true. You, you need competent people, even if they've done bad things, to kind of recreate a new state or, or create a new state. But I think the really interesting thing that we found during the research for this podcast was that it wasn't just the personnel that had lingered on from the Nazi administration, it was some of the methods. And so <laughs> we, we found quite a lot of new material on what exactly Globke had been up to under Adenauer and how he had this absolutely unbelievably powerful bureaucratic empire at his fingertips. Um, and maybe the, the most shocking thing to me was that the, the Galen organization that I mentioned earlier, this, which was Reinhard Galen's yeah. um, American-backed espionage apparatus, had set up huge spying networks within West Germany to spy on all of the people who could conceivably be opponents to Adenauer, and he was reporting directly to Globke. So Globke was getting almost daily intelligence reports, not just on the opposition and some really dreadful stuff on Willy Brandt, who later became the first social democratic chancellor, but also on like the Actors' Union and the Esperanto movement and uh, Pastor Martin Niemöller and even right. the Association for the Victims of Nazism. So you have this unbelievably intrusive secret spying operators reporting to Adenauer through Globke that hasn't even been officially absorbed into the West German That's amazing. Um, security services. And they had oh um, all of these incredible sources on their books. They had uh, Prince Oscar of Prussia. They had the, um, the head of the Hohenzollerns, who used to be yep. the royal family of Germany, the family of the Kaisers. They had two princesses and a princess of Bavaria. They had Heinz Guderian, the famous panzer general who pioneered Blitzkrieg. I mean, they were everywhere. That's amazing. So this is like the Stasi all over again, isn't it? Um, it wasn't quite as brutal as the Stasi or in overt. terms of the disappearings and the executions. And it wasn't as heavy-handed or overt as the Stasi. But in terms of its um, ambition to make sure Globke had an immaculate knowledge of everything that was going on in West Germany, you could compare it to the Stasi in some ways, yeah. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, Gosh, that's old habits then, dying hard, perhaps. Yeah, very much. And um, I'd like to give um, an example of, of how Globke was able to kind of use this intelligence um, that we discovered through, through working on this, on this podcast, The Spider in the Web. And um, it's about the, um, the Eichmann trial. Uh, so um, Adolf Eichmann had been, as, as we talked about a, a few minutes ago, the um, bureaucrat who had organised a lot of the administrative stuff for the Holocaust... And then after the war, he had gone to ground in the sort of Nazi underground in Austria, eventually got out through one of the rat lines to um, Argentina, where he worked under a cover name for um, a big German industrial company. And then uh, in 1960, he was tracked down by Mossad, the Israeli intelligence service, scrobbled off to Jerusalem and put on trial. And this trial was, was known as the trial of the century because it was the first time since the Nuremberg trials that you had... Um, somebody who had been one of the real kind of string pullers of the Holocaust in front of the world's TV cameras. The media attention was unreal. And the 
intelligence files from West Germany and the US showed that the government in Bonn, Adenauer's government, Globke's government, was absolutely bricking itself at what Eichmann might say about Globke and what he'd been up to during the Holocaust. Really? So um, we discovered that not only had West German intelligence known exactly where Eichmann was ever since the war and not told the Israelis, but also that they um, steered the trial by um, getting, as Eichmann's lawyer, a guy called Robert Servatius, who had been a West German intelligence asset for five years already. And um, Servatius was um, not only constantly briefing West German intelligence on what was going through Eichmann's mind during the trial, he was also editing Eichmann's speeches to remove um, all mention of, of Globke to try and sort of limit the p- political damage Goodness. that could come out of the trial. My God. And it obviously worked. That... Um, it did work, yeah. So Globke's name did come up, but it was nothing like as damaging as it might have been. And there was this moment during the trial when uh, Eichmann was shown a document that showed Globke and some of his cronies had taken part in a meeting in 1941 where a law was drafted that stripped Jews in the occupied territories of their statehood and allowed um, the Nazi government to confiscate their, their, their assets. And Eichmann looked at this and he said, well, why the hell am I on trial when the guy who did all this is sitting there and he's now the um, most powerful civil servant in, in West Germany? And he wanted to call Globke as a witness um, and his lawyer just blocked it. And we now know that his lawyer was reporting to, to Globke. My goodness wow. me. Yeah, that's amazing. That is extraordinary. Yeah, all sorts of shenanigans going on, aren't there? I mean, crikey. <laughs> it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great moral oh. conundrum that faces, you know, faces the United Nations when they're trying to kind of sort of rebuild the world after the Second World War, isn't it? It's, you know, I mean, you know, that, that is why you've got people in charge of Einstein's group and working for MI6. It's why you've got all sorts of terrible Nazis working for the CIA. You know, it's why you've got Globke kind of still working as a senior civil servant. Because ultimately, but, it's still got to The system's got to work. The state's got to function, hasn't it? But, but the thing we pride ourselves on in this country is that our civil service just does as it's asked by government, doesn't it? That the civil service is this sort of neutral element that, that um, in the without state... Without political persuasion. Uh, whichever government comes in, without political persuasion. Is, would, would Globke claim to be part of that tradition? Um, would he have been someone said, I'm, look, I'm just a civil servant. The, the, the politicians give me stuff to do. I do it to the best of my ability <clears> and <throat> the best of my wit, rather than, rather than, you know, because in the US, of course, we have the spoil system where they bring their own people in, blah, 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 blah. It, 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 is, that what, is that what's going on here or is it um, something else? I mean, this, this is so intriguing as a, as a, pro, as a proposition. That's, that's absolutely what Globke, how Globke tried to make himself look after the war as the the guy who was just carrying out his superior's orders which is the classic cliched defense that you get um in almost every single nazi trial after the war but um certainly you can see in a lot of cases he's taking the initiative particularly under adenauer he's doing things that adenauer doesn't know about he's like sometimes writing letters from adenauer without adenauer knowing about them he's drafting laws and then presenting them to Adenauer for approval. So you've got this uh, relationship where it's very much the Chancellor setting the kind of political compass and then Globke making it happen by any means available. Working towards the Chancellor, as it were. Yeah, very so, much I so. Mean, and he was, he was actually known in the press at the time as, as the real Chancellor of Germany. 
I mean, his his power was was not mistaken by any means. But but he's not just a bean counter, is he? Because he is, you know, he's not just a kind of figures and stats man. Because he has clearly got very very strong views, you know, rooted in his faith and his anti communism and all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, to to say he's the neutral man, you know, that's that's no Oliver. Good. Where can we hear your pod? Where can we hear your podcast? Because um, what you're doing very skillfully here is giving us the tip of the giving our listeners the tip of the iceberg to drive them. Um, yeah, you went in my over to your that's podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Where can we hear this? So we've got two episodes. The first is coming out on Thursday morning, second on Friday morning, through the Stories of Our Times podcast. It's called The Spider in the Web. Um, it's going to be available on, on all the podcast platforms. Well, it sounds absolutely great. Okay. I'm, 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 well, I'll be tuning in for that one. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, there's one story. We, we actually had to leave it out of the podcast because we, we just had too much material and not enough time. But Globke um, also had a hand in, the, in creating the Israeli nuclear weapons program. So one of the ironies of um, 20th century history is that Globke, the guy who had been behind so much of the anti-Semitic legislation of the Third Reich, ultimately became West Germany's point man for rebuilding relations with Israel after the war, which um, was kind of the precondition of West Germany's admission back into the concert of nations in the Western Alliance. So in 1952, he was the guy who brokered the reparations agreement between West Germany and Israel, where it agreed to pay compensation to the victims of the Holocaust. What happened after that that wasn't known at the time was that there were a bunch of clandestine weapons deliveries, tanks, attack helicopters, anti-aircraft guns coming from West German industry to Israel. And then in the late 1950s, the newly discovered archival documents showed that Israel, that Germany started giving Israel um, nuclear physics know-how based on the experiments that had been conducted under Hitler in the Third Reich um, and also started supplying Israel with um, the devices that it needed for its program. And then ultimately, after the Eichmann trial, as a kind of thank you for keeping Globka out of it, um, they organised a massive loan to finance Israel's first um, atomic power facility at Dimona in the Negev desert. So it was German money that, um, that sort of funded the origins of it. I knew, the, I knew the French were involved with Demona, but I had no idea that the West Germans were too. That is amazing. Gosh, ironies abound. Um, uh, wow. Thank you, thank, you, thank you very much for joining us. Um, uh, again, we, we so often have guests on and suddenly all these, it tosses up all this, these things you have to think about. In particular, you know, can you blame a civil servant for what its government does? But um, sounds like you could with the <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks very much. We'll see you all again soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Cheerio. Cheerio.